Just one last announcement. On October 18th, Saturday in the afternoon, we are going to be having an outreach at the Bromley Heath Project. Uh, for many people, it's really the infamous Bromley Heath Project. Uh, a lot of uh, crime and a multitude of social problems just emanating from those projects. It's a gigantic project. If you've ever been over there, there's something like 1,500 units. They have an amphitheater right in the middle, and we're going to be giving them a free concert uh, along with um, face painting and uh, balloons and that type of thing. Uh, if you would like to, and, and we would invite you, and we would very much like you to join us in that, we are going to be having a short meeting after church just right up here, I would say about uh, 20 minutes after church has ended, after the fellowship and after I've um, you know, finished praying with people up here, uh, we're just going to be talking um, about what's going to be happening and assigning roles. We need people uh, to just, uh, we're going to be having a, a little barbecue limited to hot dogs and soda, but we need people to you know, be in charge of that, another group of people to be in charge with. Uh, Bromley Heath has some sort of marketing and advertisement that they have uh, people do when they do um, a, a, um, an outreach there. So uh, we need folks just to volunteer to uh, make the pamphlets and be willing to uh, pass them um, out and this type of thing. Uh, we also have to get some chairs. Uh, the, the Calvary in Rockland uh, will be joining us. Their worship team is going to be coming down um, as well. Uh, and uh, so we're really looking forward to this. Most of all, I would ask that you pray. The last thing that um, Satan wants is for any of those people there to be freed. And, and I just know that uh, Jesus is, is one of the, it is for many of those people, the only way out of the circumstances that they have found themselves in. And, you know, in many respects, that's a good place to be. You know, in the book of James, it says that, you know, cursed be you if you're rich, but blessed are you if you're poor, because the poor look to God, uh, whereas the rich, you know, find their way out of bad circumstances through, through buying um, themselves out of it. But the poor don't have that option. So in many respects, it's a good place to be. But Jesus has called us to reach out to the poor. There's no such thing as a, a church that, you know, targets yuppies. I mean, even though... Some churches say that that's what, they, uh, that's what their target, target audience is. There, there's nothing in the Bible that supports uh, that kind of um, idea. Uh, you know, the Bible says, go unto all the world. And uh, now if you happen to be with a, a people group where there's no one else around, um, that's okay. But if you're in an area like most areas, most cities, um, the, uh, there's, a, there's many different people with ethnic backgrounds and we're supposed to be opened up to all of them. One of the visions I've just always had for this church is that we would be a house of prayer for all nations. And so um, uh, we will be doing that outreach. So please uh, come and join us here about 20 minutes uh, after church and be in, uh, in prayer for that. Okay. Matthew chapter 1, verses uh, 18 through 21. We spent the last two weeks on the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
we concentrated on a few different points. The first point was that Matthew broke from the uh, Jewish tradition of never mentioning the name of a woman in a genealogy. He mentions the name of a woman five times, and the women that he mentioned were all, in one way or another, they had a bad reputation either themselves or their lineage. Jesus Christ, because his name came after theirs, is conspicuously identified with them. It would be like if you were the direct descendant of Jack the Ripper or uh, John Wilkes Booth or Lizzie Borden. Anyone know who Lizzie Borden is? I mean, if you were running for president or something, you would have a very hard time shaking your reputation loose from, you know, your lineage. And so Jesus Christ, uh, by, you know, following the names of these women, Tamar, uh, who uh, was a woman who uh, seduced her, her father-in-law into bed, Ruth, who comes from a line of people, starting from Lot, who uh, uh, they, they started from, uh, you know, some two daughters luring their, their father of all people in, in, into bed, as well as a number of uh, the men in the genealogy, some of whom had pretty horrible reputations themselves. The Holy Spirit, through Matthew, was making a statement to all the world that Jesus Christ is willing to identify with sinners. And he is willing to identify with you, if only you will leave your life and follow him, whatever that means. Now, it was no coincidence that Matthew, who had been a lifelong thief, liar, and extortionist, a tax collector, was the author who included the names of these women. Matthew had experienced firsthand that if a man or woman, regardless of their background, is willing to give up their life of sin, Jesus was willing to give up his life for them. Jesus, who was wildly popular, I mean, he couldn't get away from the crowd. He tried, he'd like cross a lake, and then all of a sudden he'd get to the other side, and there was people, it was before the internet or something, you could just email, hey, Jesus is coming, you know, uh, He'd get to the other side of the lake and there'd be thousands of people there. He was wildly popular, and, but he was willing to risk having his reputation as a prophet and a man of God destroyed just for Matthew so that Matthew could be saved. Now, we hear the statement sometimes that Jesus would have come to earth even if it was to save one sinner. And, you know, there's part of us at least part of me, that think that's, you know, that's kind of a corny statement. But you know something? The, 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 you, we see the truth of that statement just in the life of Matthew. Jesus was willing to, willing to risk everything for this one guy, the last person you would think uh, would be worth it to ruin his reputation over was Matthew. I mean, Jesus, why are you willing to lose your reputation on this guy? I mean, he's a thief, an extortionist, and a liar. I mean, why not go after a king or something? Uh, you know, or an important priest or a military official. Everything Jesus did, he did with, a, with deliberate aforethought. It's kind of a complicated phrase, an overly intellectual phrase. I like to speak in, in, in simple terms, but 
He did everything he did with deliberate aforethought, meaning his actions he did in the most deliberate fashion. His actions spoke louder than words. He was willing to lose his reputation over this nobody, Matthew, this thief, this liar, this extortionist, so that 2,000 years later, you and me would be able to understand that Jesus is the same way towards us. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how popular or unpopular you may be, you, you may have been that person in school who no one noticed, no one cared about. When people were drawing up lists for parties or sports teams, you may have been the afterthought. Your nickname may have been afterthought. As you're, you know, can you imagine having that name? After, there, there goes afterthought, you know. <laughs> Your nickname may have been that. But you can rest assured just from this, you know, reading this genealogy, that Jesus Christ knows who you are. You're not an afterthought to him. Look at the example of Matthew. Now in Luke 12, 12, one of the most disobeyed verses in all of the Bible Jesus says, when you give a dinner, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you re be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. If there's anything that Jesus made clear, it's that anyone who comes to him, anyone, you may be the afterthought of the afterthought. He's willing to risk his whole reputation. He's willing to risk everything for you. In fact, he did. He went to the cross for you. He went to the cross for you. And you thought genealogies were boring. You've been skipping over that genealogy every time you've read the New Testament. Shame on you. Well, just kidding. So did I until I prepared this message. So, we, we see in, the, in this genealogy the principle that is loud and clear that throughout the Gospels, Christ is willing to identify with sinners. And what do I mean by identify again? It's just being able to hang out and be a part of them, be, be associated with them, regardless of what anyone thought. He was willing to identify with you and me. Now, we also studied last week that in this genealogy, as we see in the genealogy in Luke, Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecies that the Messiah, the Savior of mankind, would come not only from the seed of David, the line of David, but he would also have the right to sit on the throne of David. In other words, he would descend from the line of kings that came from David. And we also see why it was that the genealogy in Luke is totally different than the genealogy in Matthew. We should, gone are those days where we're trying, we should try to make excuses for that because, in fact, if you read Jeremiah 22, there had to be two different genealogies. There wasn't. This book right here would just be another book. It would just be another, you know, book, another person's opinion. If you weren't here last week, maybe you want to um, order the tape from last week. Sorry, Scott. Um, I, I say stuff like that and... You know, there's two things I fear, God and Scott Richardson. But, but anyway, now I have a question. Should, should we move off the genealogy? Should does any a vote here? Should we move off it? I mean, I had a thought, you know, if we go ten more weeks on the genealogy, 
we'll have the birth of Jesus right in time for Christmas. So, you know, we'll, 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 anyone, anyone, any, anyone faith? I don't see any hands raised. Okay, let's, let's, let's continue. Um, Matthew 18, now, Matthew 1, 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So it says before they came together, meaning, bluntly, before jo Joseph and Mary had sexual intercourse, Mary became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not born as a result of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is called the doctrine of the virgin birth. Now, listen to me carefully on this one. If you take away the doctrine of the virgin birth, if you take that one away, if you remove that from your system of beliefs, if you, like many professors in Christian seminaries across this country, if you take the position that a virgin birth is impossible, and then that's ridiculous. No one can be born without a man and a woman coming together. If you agree with the long line of skeptics who believe that Matthew, the book of Matthew, or Matthew just borrowed this story from a long line of Greek and Babylonian legends about virgins giving birth to gods, if, if you believe that, if you take that position, your faith is not Christianity. You may have a faith in something, but it's not Christianity. The virgin birth is at the very foundation of what we believe. You take that away and everything else crumbles. Everything else. If Jesus Christ was not born by a virgin, nothing else makes sense. All the prophecy in the Old Testament, all the signposts we've been talking about in our Bible study on Wednesdays, uh, pointing to Christ, the very basis of our salvation, it, it, it's destroyed. Now, why do I say that? Why do I say that? I mean, come on, Steve, aren't you being a little extreme? You know, can't I still be a Christian and not believe that? No. No. You, you may call yourself a Christian, but you are in name only. Let me try to explain myself. At the very heart of our faith, or the, the biblical faith, there's a couple of important points and, and one is the first is man more specifically Adam and Eve were created in the image of God perfect and without sin in a perfect uninterrupted relationship with God now as good as that may sound as wonderful as that may sound as great as that may sound they thought the grass was greener on the other side of the garden and they rebelled they wanted something better they wanted to be like God, and they turned away from God. They sinned. Now, the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve passed their sin onto uh, their descendants, unto you and me, and we've inherited that sin nature from them. So the penalty for our sin is death. Tell you, you know, when we get to heaven, it's going to be tempting to, not to search Adam and Eve out. You know, I'll get to Jesus later. Let me get my hands on this Adam guy and wring his neck. I mean, you know, after everything. But I guess, you know, if we were in his place, we probably would have done the same thing. Adam sinned and introduced sin into the human race. But the Old Testament is the story of God bringing man back to himself, the plan of redemption. Now, at the plant core of the plan of redemption, 
was that God so loved the world that he would send his son into the world and his son would bear the sin of the world. But the only way that was going to work was going to be if that son was perfect, if he was sinless, without sin, completely without sin. If that son had any sin of his own, he'd have to die for his own sin. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, if he, if he sinned, he'd have to die for his own sin. It's sin to, uh, you know, his death for us wouldn't have any effect. Now, to prepare man for the coming of his only son, to prepare man for the coming of his only son, God introduced in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, a sacrificial system whereby lambs and certain other animals took man's place on the sacrificial altar. They were sacrificed on the altar for the sins of the people. Please turn with me to Leviticus. Leviticus, that's the third book of the Bible. Leviticus 22. Leviticus 22, verses 19 through 24. You know, anytime anyone tells you, look, I don't really get into the Old Testament. I get into the New Testament. Please. The Old Testament is just so rich. It will make your faith so rich because um, it, 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 what it is, it, it prepares you for Christ. And, you know, some missionaries, there's a very successful missionary in Ethiopia who uh, uh, brought about a great revival who, who just taught from the Old Testament for a long, long period of time, never mentioned anything about the New Testament or Jesus or anything. And to prepare this, this Ethiopian tribe for Christ. And, and it had this wonderful effect. They, they got to the point where they, okay, now what next? You know, give us this, this final redemption that the Old Testament is talking about. And a great revival uh, broke out in Ethiopia. It was about 20 years ago. Uh, and, and we actually know some, some folks who um, were in the area and knew of those people uh, in Ethiopia. They were missionaries. Uh, but anyway, um, there was one overriding principle about these animals that were offered up on the sacrificial um, uh, altar. They couldn't just be any other lamb. They had to be a perfect lamb. Turn to verse 19. Verse 19 of Leviticus 22 says this, You shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goat. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer, for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a freewill offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the Lord. Either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer as a freewill offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. You shall not offer to the Lord what is bruised or crushed or torn or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land. Now, if you just plugged in Jesus' name, into here, which as a, as a New Testament Christian believer, you can do. 
verse 22, at the end of verse 22, Jesus must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in Jesus. So the lamb had to be perfect. But this was merely a shadow of what to come. Now uh, turn to Hebrews all the way to the back of your Bible. Uh, about what, eight or, eight or nine letters or books from the back or something like that? <coughs> Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, for the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 4 it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So, the sacrificial system that God introduced in the Old Testament was a shadow of things to come. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. But, but now remember what Jesus, what, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, what did he say? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus was the Lamb of God, and there was one requirement, one overriding requirement for this Lamb. It had to be perfect. Now, Jesus could not possibly be perfect if he was the product of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. Because if Jesus was the product of sexual intercourse of Joseph and Mary, he would have inherited their sin. Adam and Eve corrupted the gene pool. Anyone and everyone who is descended from Adam has that sin. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says, We are by nature children of wrath. M meaning, by our very nature, we are under the wrath of God because of our sin. Romans uh, chapter 5 verse uh, 12 says, Through one man Adam, sin entered the world, and death spread to all men, because all have sinned. If Jesus had sinned, he would have had to pay the penalty for his own sin. Or if he even had that little piece in his gene pool, just a tiny little scintilla, he would have had to, uh, of a sin nature, he would have had to die for his own sins. Brothers and sisters, if you take away the virgin birth, you are ripping out the very foundation of Christianity. You haven't a Christian leg to stand on. If you go to a church and you hear the pastor say, oh, the virgin birth is, is such a nice, sweet allegory. It's, it's symbolic. It, it really didn't happen, but it's a demonstration really of, of how much we need God. You know, get up and run out. Just run out of that church because, let me tell you, a, 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 a lightning bolt is on its way to that church. And, and, and that church is, is a Christian church in name only. Uh, the name of the, uh, the church, it should be changed. You know, Chuck's Church or Rick's Religion or, you know, Fanny's Faith or whatever. You know, it, it, it's not Christianity. It's just not. But anyway, let's continue. 
Again, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child. She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, Christian theologians bicker and argue about what actually happened to Mary here. Some believe that the Holy Spirit planted Christ right in the womb. In other words, it, it, the Holy Spirit sort of bypassed Mary's egg because in Mary's egg, what, there's 23 chromosomes of Mary. And, and if Mary is in any way involved in the conception of Christ, Christ would have inherited sin from Mary. Now, the Catholic Church, recognizing this problem, came up with a doctrine, not until the 19th century, by the way, uh, that Mary was sinless herself. But the problem in doing that, they create more problems than they solve because what about Mary's, Mary's mom and Mary's mom's mom and Mary's mom's mom's mom and, Mary, you know, and so forth? Are they all perfect? I mean, do we have to make doctrines for them of their perfection? I mean, it, it just doesn't work. The easier thing to believe is, is just what the Bible says, is that God, like, you know, like he created Adam, he created Christ from scratch. The strength of that position is, is that really it, it's closest to what the verse actually says. What does it say at the end of verse 18? She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, at the end of verse 20, it says, um, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it was not of Joseph. It wasn't of Mary. It was of, he was of the Holy Spirit. So, you know, if you adhere to that, that, that theory, you know, when Joseph and Mary were showing their little baby around and, and people were saying, oh, you know, his, his ears stick out just like Joseph's ears or his, you know, he has a pointy nose just like Mary's. Well, if you're a proponent of that, that theory, that no, none of that makes any sense. Now, you may well say, well, then how is Jesus from the seed of David? That's a good question. Uh, this is clearly an area where reasonable men can differ, but not the virgin birth. Not that. We can't differ on that and, and really have fellowship. You know, we can be friends, but, you know, you can't be really in the same church because it really just makes no sense. There's no common ground, and, and you can't worship and, and function as a church body when you don't have any common ground. You know, go start up Fanny's Faith or Rick's Religion, but, you know. So anyway, verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, imagine for a second that you're engaged to be married. You're in love. Everything seems to be going your way. The Lord has blessed you with this beautiful young lady, this pretty young lady. Uh, every, she's everything you ever dreamed of. She's beautiful. She's godly. She's intelligent. Sounds a lot like my wife. Um, but anyway, you have kept the relationship sexually pure. You haven't so much as kissed her. And one morning she comes to you and tells you she's pregnant. Now, and, but oddly enough, She's not in the slightest upset. She's radiating with happiness. 
She tells you the strangest story. She said that an angel visited her and, and told, and the angel told her that the Holy Spirit uh, conceived a child or would conceive a child within her. The child would be called the son of the highest. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom shall never end. Now, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. I mean, if Stephanie came up to me and told me that, I'd be like, oh no, I married a nut. Oh no, you know, I, 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 I thought I had it made. I thought everything was going my way and I, I'm married to a loony tune, you know. From one day to the next, Joseph's life was in turmoil. He, he first uh, got the idea that he would seek a quiet divorce. Now, what we think of engagement is much different than engagement to the Jews. You see, engagement to the Jews at this time was a contract. When you got engaged with a woman, it was a serious thing. You, and to get out of it, you, you, you know, there had to be a writ of divorce. There had to be a divorce to get out of an engagement. You know, when we tell folks around here, uh, uh, you know, engagement's a, a serious, serious thing. It really is. It's not something to be taken lightly. Uh, and to the Jews at the time, uh, you know, they were not married at this time. It says very clearly in verse 18, uh, after his mother Mary was, after Jesus' mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, uh, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So it was when they were engaged that she was found with child. It's important to understand that. Now, Joseph could have made a public example out of Mary. According to Deuteronomy 23, he could have had her publicly stoned. Remember the scene uh, later on in the book of Matthew when the Pharisees, dragged the adulterous woman before Jesus and they said to Jesus, well, the law of Moses says that she needs to be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? And uh, Jesus, you know, is writing on the ground. Probably no one really knows what he was writing. May have been writing all there the times they had committed adultery. I don't know. Uh, but uh, he stands up uh, and, and he says, well, let he who has not sin cast the first stone and and slowly all the people walk away and jesus turned to the woman and said where are your accusers and she said there are none lord and he said well neither will i condemn you neither will i accuse you go and sin no more go and sin no more and it could be that jesus saw in that woman the predicament of his own mother because remember, she had to live with that reputation her whole life. Remember when the Pharisees approached Jesus, uh, they said, well, we know who our fathers are, you know, insinuating that, you know, no one really knows who your father is because the word got around that Mary was pregnant. She was only engaged. So it could be that Jesus saw in that woman the predicament of his own mother and how she was spared from the public disgrace of, of, of stoning Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, it says in verse 20, while he thought about these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, I think Joseph went into, went to his bed that night, went into the evening, into the night in tremendous mental turmoil. I think he was crying out to God deep into the night 
tossing and turning on his bed, you know, oh, stone her, quietly divorce her, Messiah, son of the living God, the throne of David, you know, who is this man who slept with her, you know, ah, you know, and, and, and he's in his, and he's, he's just probably thinking of way to get out of the situation, he's going over plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, when he got to Z, it was plan A, A, plan B, B, plan C, C, you know how we get when, you know, at night, uh, or is it just me that this happens to? You know, we're going over every conceivable plan, and we're tossing and turning, uh, and we're uh, we're still we're seeking God. It was probably one of those nights where you know you wake up feeling like you had slept in a washing machine. You know, just is horrible, stumbling out of bed. But you know, that's what is called if you're if you're really seeking God. That that's what's called wrestling with God in prayer, and God does a special thing in our lives. You know, when, when, you know, in those times where we persevere with God. And God is always faithful. He really is. And he comes to Joseph and he says, there in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So this wild and crazy story that Joseph had heard from Mary was confirmed by the Lord. What Mary had heard from God was confirmed by the Lord. Now, there's an important principle here for husbands and wives and in really any relationship. And that is the Holy Spirit says the same thing to both husband and wife. He doesn't say one thing to the husband and, and, and then withhold it from the wife. 14 years ago, uh, right after I was married, I, I really felt a, felt a strong calling to become a pastor and to become a pastor in, in, in the city, really in the city of Boston. I was eons away from here. but And I told my, my newlywed bride, my bride Stephanie, that I wanted to become a pastor and, and a pastor in really an inner city church, and, and she lost it. She lost it. Before she, she knew me, she had written up a list of things that she wanted in a husband. And, you know, she wanted someone on the darker side with brown hair. She and had it to be tall, taller than uh, she, you know, sorry, Amy and Scott, you know, that, that didn't happen with you. But uh, <laughs> he'll, he'll get me back. He'll have the mic someday. But, but uh, he... he um, he had to speak Spanish, but, you know, most importantly, and this is true, most importantly, he could not be a pastor. He could not be a pastor. That was one requirement. And so she, right after she gets married, what does her husband tell her? You know, I really feel called to be a pastor. And so um, not only that, at the time, we had been visiting a church in, in this, right in the city, in the middle of the city of Miami. It had the whole thing, the homeless, the fruits and the nuts, you know, they were all in this church. And... You know, Stephanie, this was not her idea of, of, uh, of a sort of a, of a life, and, and she just wigged out. She wept, and she wept. And I remember she got counseling from a friend of her mother, a man named Stefan Trevigian, and the advice that he gave her was this. He actually pointed to an engraving on his own wedding ring with his wife, Ruth, who, by the way, is Billy Graham's daughter, man was Billy Graham's son-in-law and 
and what it, the, the principle was that the Holy Spirit, you know, speaks in one voice, you know, to, to the husband and to the wife. And so, um, you know, if, you're, if this is really from God, you're going to hear from God too. And so she came home and I asked her, how did the counseling session go? And, and she was uh, kind of giddy. She said, well, it's not going to happen until God says the same thing to me. <laughs> I had a big problem with that. You know, I, I really felt called, and here in front of me was a woman, and there's no way her mind was ever going to change. And, and you know, so um, uh, I, I really, really fought God on, uh, you know, when it came to this, but over, the, over time, the Lord did His work. She, it did a powerful work in, in her heart. God is not going to give some far-out radical plan to one person in a relationship, but then be silent on it to the other. So if a husband is saying, God is telling me I should be a missionary in Africa, and the wife is saying, God is telling me I should be a housewife in a suburb with two cars and a pool, you know, that something's going to have to happen. You know, God is going to have to do a work there. However, sometimes it takes a little time. So if there was ever a need to have God speaking to both wife and husband, it was on the subject of raising the Son of God, the Messiah, and the Savior of mankind. And, 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 and it didn't matter how convinced Mary wa convincing Mary was when she relayed the story of the angel to Joseph. Joseph needed a word of God himself. I mean, really, Joseph, I know this sounds crazy, but I'm pregnant above by the Holy Spirit. Really, honestly, that's what's going on, you know. Uh, I, I'm sorry. God needed to have a, a separate and distinct conversation with, with Joseph on this one. You know, there's also a great lesson here just on waiting on the Lord. You know, God, could you imagine if instead of seeking God on the issue, Joseph just said, Mary, I don't believe all this cock and bull about angels and Messiah. Pack your bags. We're going to the town square to stone you. You know, can you imagine? But no, he, he, it says he was a just man, and he waited on God. And, you know, whenever you have something of large consequence, something really important in your life, don't make a hasty decision. You know, very rarely is the time when you've got to make a hasty decision. And I don't know if your personality is like mine, but as soon as I get an idea in my mind, man, I've got to go run and do it right then and there. But, you know, the, the, there's this principle in the Bible called waiting on God. One of the most influential books that, you know, uh, for me in my life, other than the Bible, was just a little book by Andrew Murray called Waiting on God. And I, I recommend it to all of you. Just wonderful, wonderful principle. Rarely is there ever a need to rush into anything. So here, Joseph, waiting on God, says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You know, in the Bible, when it comes to life, when it comes to the formation of life, you will always see the Holy Spirit doing it. See, here it says, the Holy is that which is in you is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, as Christians, we believe in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the, the Holy Spirit. Three persons in one. They each have a, a, a distinct role, but they are one. That's a mystery. We're never going to understand that. But, but one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is creating life. And, and in Genesis chapter 1, in the, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God 
was hovering over the face of the waters. It was, it was the Spirit of God who, that, that formed and fashioned life. It was the Holy Spirit who conceived Christ in the womb of Mary. It is the Holy Spirit when you're born again, when you decide to give up living for you and to follow Jesus, it is the Holy Spirit who comes in you and forms new life in you. So here Joseph is told uh, that the Holy Spirit has conceived a child in his wife and that he will be the adopted father of the Messiah. Now, as I've mentioned in weeks past, every devout Jew at this time was waiting on the Messiah. Every devout Jew was waiting with great expectation on the Messiah. It wasn't a matter of whether, it was a matter of when. When was he going to come? You know, the best thing I can compare it to is a ship captain's wife a ship captain's wife who lives on the sea. And, and you know, uh, she's been told that her husband is going to return home. And, and every night she goes out onto the balcony or at sunset and looks over the horizon and sees if there's any, any you know, visual evidence of her, of her husband coming. That's what it was like uh, for the Jews. 2,000 years ago in Palestine, the people were seething with excitement, waiting on the Messiah. And, and, and I'm sure there were some Jews who woke up every morning saying, hmm, yeah, I wonder if it's today. I wonder if today the Messiah is going to come. And so that's why we see when, when Jesus is brought into the temple as a young baby, we see Simeon and Anna there waiting for him. And, and they say, all right, you know, now I can die in peace because I've seen uh, the Messiah. And Joseph was no different. Waiting on the Messiah, uh, perhaps he was one of those who woke up thinking, I wonder if it's today, but, you know, I'm sure it never crossed his mind that his own son would be the Messiah. He was a poor carpenter. Many today believe that, really, he was a stonemason. And he was so poor that he could only afford to offer up a pair of pigeons when he and Mary went to dedicate Jesus at the temple. Now, poor people often have a complex that no good thing can happen to them. No wonderful thing can happen to them. That just happens to people on TV or whatever. And, and, and um, I'm sure that, you know, the last thing on Joseph's mind was that the Messiah was going to be uh, born through him. But, you know, there's such a good lesson in this for us because, you know, I meet many Christians who, who I counsel and they struggle with the thought that they're, they're sort of accursed. They're just destined to get a raw deal. Now, I, I talk to, to people all the time like this, and, and many of them Christians, they struggle with the thought that they're always going to get the raw deal. If anything can go wrong, it will. And, and night after night, you know, they, you know, they have, and, we, and I struggle with this. You have dreams, you know. You, you're, you, you dream that your family's leaving on a cruise, and you're on the port going out, and you're the last one. And, you know, it, there's this thing that we have. It's sort of left over from our old nature that we're always going to... Um, uh, get the raw, raw deer. We're running in a race and we're, we're coming in first, but all of a sudden our, 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 our legs become lead and, you know, we can't run anymore and everyone's running by us. Or, or you know, we struggle with the idea that we're always going to wind up on the losing side. You know, everyone else is going to find a wife and a husband, but, but not me. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be left, you know, the raw deal. And, and, and I'm going to be the one who spends the rest of my life without a promotion. And I'm going to be the one who, who miss, uh, misses out on all the excitement. Yesterday, I purchased um, a book. It's called Pessimisms. Pessimisms. Now, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Ephesians 4.29. It says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, 
but only what is good for necessary edification. And so I didn't buy this book so I could memorize things and run around sharing them with people. But the reason I bought this book is because, except, you know, for I looked through it, and, and other than the book of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's this type of thing that, that really is the most perfect, most accurate reflection of a life without Christ. In the book of Ecclesiastes, what, what's the conclusion? Life is meaningless. Life is meaningless. And, and you know, if you don't have Christ, if you don't understand who God is, that's the best, most accurate, honest opinion any man could come to. So I purchased this bo book, and I, I want uh, to read uh, a you, to you a couple of these pessimisms. No matter how you look at it, life is a no-win situation. Hmm. Take courage. Whatever you decide to do, it will probably be the wrong thing. Ninety percent of life is miserable, if you're lucky. There are two tragedies in life. One is not to get your heart's desire. The other is to get it. Mm. One day I sat thinking almost in despair. A hand fell on my shoulder and a voice said reassuringly, cheer up, things could get worse. So I cheered up and sure enough, things got worse. <laughs> the light at the end of the tunnel is only a train and it's not yours anyhow. After a year in therapy, my psychiatrist said to me, you know, maybe life isn't for everyone. <laughs> That's brutal. If someone is really honest with themselves, some, of, some people are still getting it right now. It's all of a sudden it's coming to them. Yeah, that's like that with me. We laugh, but if we're really, really, really honest with ourselves, that is a life without Christ. That is why millions and millions of bottles of Prozac are sold in this company, country every year. It's because people realize that all this stuff is true and, and they can't cope with it and so they have to have some kind of medication. And, and, you know, but the thing is, when we come to Jesus Christ, when we ask Jesus Christ in our life, when we pass from death to life, Jesus said to us, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. We need to completely get rid of all these kind of ideas. And, and you know, the problem is, is we carry all this baggage uh, from our old life into our new life. And, and, you know, inevitably, um, you, know, you know, we're thinking we're going to get a raw deal. We're thinking we're under a curse that God really doesn't like us. If anything can go wrong, it will. And, you know, Christians, they need to get rid of those notions. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, every promise is yes and amen in Christ. Every promise is yes and amen in Christ. And you ask, what promises? Well, there's hundreds. There are hundreds. But let me just give you a few. Luke 6, 38. Give 
this is Jesus speaking, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your bosom. Wow. Matthew 6.33, you've heard this a million times. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. From Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, if you're one of those hard luck type of characters, oh, nothing good's ever going to happen to me. <laughs> you know, if anything could go wrong, it will go wrong. If I'm involved, you know, someone told me, cheer up, it could be worse. So I cheered up, it got worse. You know, whatever. Uh, it, it, let me tell you, not only is that an affront to a holy God, really, let's call it what, is it, what it is. It's an affront to God. It's something, it, 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 also, let's call it what it is. It's nothing more than good old-fashioned superstition. You're mired in superstition. That's what all that is. Uh, if, if that is not, I'm talking to those of you who have given your life to Christ. The Bible says that unless you are born again, you cannot inherit the, 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 the kingdom of God. So I'm talking now to those of you who have understood that, you know, God created man perfect, man rebelled, he has a need for salvation, and you've come to the place in your life where you've asked Christ into your life. You've given Christ to your life because otherwise, all this stuff here, it's all true. It's, it's an accurate description. It's an of, of life. So you're, if you're admired in that kind of superstition that, you know, you're always going to get a raw deal, you need to get rid of it. You need to get rid of it. So here in Matthew 1, Joseph's probably thinking, wouldn't you know it? I found myself a wife. I thought, wow, could, I, could me, Joseph, really be blessed like that? Me, a wife, a beautiful, godly wife? I, I knew it was too good to be true. I just knew it. She's pregnant. I, I just knew it, you know? But tossing and turning in his sleep, he's like, you know, I'm a loser. What do I do now? Do I make a public example of her? No, I love her. I, I, I'll, I'll quietly give her a certificate of divorce. And, and, you know, why does it always have to be me, Lord? Why not my brother Mordecai? He has all the luck, you know, but whatever. Next thing you know, an angel appears to him in a dream and, 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 and no, Joseph, it's not what you think. Now, you've been following God. You're, you're, you've been following God. And, 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 and this marriage will go through. That thing which is conceived in your wife is by the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus, he will save his people from their sins. Hard luck, Joseph, hardly. He was to have the privilege of being the adopted father of the Messiah. Now, I hate to break the news to you, but you're not going to get that privilege. Because this only happened once. It was one of those things that only happened once. When Jesus comes again, it's going to be in the clouds and he's not going to be a crying baby. However... Jeremiah 29.11 says this, I know the plan I have for you. Plans of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. God has a wonderful plan for you. It involves His Son, Jesus Christ. Get rid of those thoughts, those notions that God will never bless you. Everyone else is going to get blessed, not me. I'm hard luck Harry or hard luck Harriet. No, that's an affront to the holiness of God. He has a wonderful plan for you. It involves Christ. You know, when I look at the last 15 years of my life, it's all, all those promises have come true. It's better than I can ever have asked or imagined. And it keeps getting better. Now, it, it does involve following Christ. And look, along the way, you know, it, it, it gets tough. It really, really does. 
but the tougher it gets, the better it is on the other side. And, and um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I just praise God because I, I see in my life, and I didn't deserve it, but I see in my life just a living, breathing example of Matthew 6.33. He's added all these things. More things than I could ever ask or imagine. And it keeps getting better. And, and I look at this book of pessimisms and, and I say, why? Why are people settling any, for anything less than Christ? Why is it? You know, sometimes it's because we haven't told them. Sometimes it's because we haven't told them. But, you know, a lot of the times it's, it's I don't know, the blindness of their eyes that, or whatever. But if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, let me say this. The Bible says that without Him, you're hopelessly lost and you're on your way to eternity separated from God. But, but Jesus says that He knocks on the door of every heart of man and if they open the door, He will come in. And, and so if you've never done that, please, let's just settle that today. We're, you know, we're going to close now. And, and, but if you've never done that, please, you know, come up and, and we can just settle it all it, it, because all it takes is a prayer of faith. That's all it is. We're saved by faith, not by our own good works, but by a faith relationship with God. Okay. Next week we will continue and we'll finish out uh, chapter 1. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your word. And I thank you that all the promises are yes and amen in Christ. And I thank you that, Lord, you've provided a way, a way out, a way out of this life where we're always getting a raw deal. God, Satan is luring people every day into a raw deal. But again, Lord Jesus, you said that you've come that you would give life to people and, and give it abundantly, give it to the full, Lord. If there's anyone in this room who's never come to that place in their life where they've given their life to you, Lord, I just pray that by your strength they would break down the fear and and settle things with you, God. And Father, just for all of us, God, we pray, we pray, Lord, that we would walk in the fullness of all your promises, all of them, that we would put aside and put to death any kind of superstition, Lord God, that we're going to get anything less than everything that you have planned for us, Lord. God, I just pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, God bless you. In 20 minutes, we'll have a meeting right up here about the outreach uh, at Bromley Heath. God bless you.